Chapter 36 of the Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ocean of Air Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes G. Byrne. Chapter 36 Birds of the Air. The birds of the air. How natural an expression it seems. We talk of the birds of the air involuntarily, as of the fishes of the sea and the beasts of the earth. Practically, as more than once stated before, all living creatures are creatures of the ocean of air. Since all breathe air, none can live without air. But the birds, living on the very wings of the wind, delighting to soar into highest regions of the atmosphere are in the fullest sense inhabitants of the air birds do not merely float on the air any more than do insects no insect even is lighter than perfectly still air and no bird exists which is not very much heavier than air a balloon floats because of its lightness and so becomes the helpless sport of the air currents a bird can resist and struggle against the wind. True, birds are light in make, with hollow air-filled bones. If not so, each bird would need much longer wings and much stronger muscles than are now necessary. But its weight is shown by the fact that if wounded and disabled when flying, it at once falls to the ground. A bird actually lighter than air would float still, even when wounded. Since it keeps itself up through active exertion, it drops when active exertion becomes impossible. When a man rows himself over a lake, he is not merely floating. The boat does float, but it does not advance by means of buoyancy. The man propels the boat by using the resistance of the water. He pushes the boat forward by pushing against the water. A bird does this and more. The bird not only rows itself forward, but also raises itself upward and keeps itself aloft by actual force. A bird's flight is a question not of lightness, but of force against force. It uses the resistance of the air as the rower uses the resistance of the water. No bird could fly in a vacuum, even if it could live there. The wings would have nothing to push against. Wing movement is often extraordinarily rapid. Even the heavy, slow heron flaps its great pinions at a rate of a hundred and thirty or forty strokes each minute, twice that if we count the upward as well as the downward motion. Small birds, particularly pheasants and partridges, vibrate their wings with such speed as to leave only a blurred impression on the eye. In other words, each flap remains upon the retina of the eye until the next comes to mingle with it. A bird is actually forced forward by the elasticity of the air. Like water, only to a greater extent, air may be compressed, but there is always in both fluids a quick rebound or reaction. The wings of a bird striking downward compress the air sharply, and the instant expansion of that compressed air drives the wings on, sending the bird with them. For this purpose the wings are both strong and light in make. 
They are also joined to the body at such an angle that each stroke necessarily sends the bird forward. A bird cannot fly backward, for the whole set of the wing and the wing feathers is against such a motion. It may drop backwards, yielding itself to the influence of gravitation, and only guiding or steadying itself by wing movement. But actually to fly backwards is an impossible feat. Nor can it rise upward except head foremost. Merely to float upwards in any sort of position is again beyond its power. The first rising from the ground implies a certain amount of vigorous exertion, which in the case of very large and heavy birds becomes an actual struggle. Once aloft and under way, they sail onward easily enough. The same difficulty, which we saw wonderfully met in the case of the dragonfly, recurs here. If each downward stroke of the wing forces the bird onward, how is it that each upward stroke does not undo the work of the last downward stroke, forcing the bird equally far backward? In a bird, there is no curious mechanical arrangement for feathering its feathered oars at every stroke. One answer has been given already. The set of the wings altogether is such as to render forward motion easy, backward motion difficult. Also, a bird's wing is rounded or convex on the upper side, hollow or concave on the underside. By the downward stroke it encloses and compresses air vigorously, while in the upward stroke air flows over the edges and escapes all ways. Moreover, a beautiful contrivance is seen in the arrangement of the feathers. They are made so to underlap one another, that when the downward stroke takes place, the compressed air below forces them into a more compact shield, through which little or no air may pass. But when the upward stroke takes place, a precisely opposite effect is seen. The feathers then open and part asunder, and the air streams freely through. Who does not see a mighty mastermind at work in all these wondrously delicate adjustments of nature? Who will not, if he will? Birds do not always fly with quick and vehement wing vibration. Sometimes, seated by the sea, one might say, a grey and white seagull, lying calmly on the air, its heavy white waxen body floating apparently like a feather, with outstretched wings scarcely stirring. This is a feat in which some birds are very much more expert than others. In an absolutely still atmosphere it would not be possible, but air, as we have found earlier, is seldom if ever absolutely still. The effects of wind may be produced in two ways, either by the air flowing against motionless objects, or by objects moving through motionless air. Now here is a practical carrying out of that principle. A bird keeps itself aloft by striking its wings against the air, so using air resistance to overcome the gravitation which drags it earthward. But suppose a wind is blowing against the bird when it is aloft. If the bird is sufficiently dexterous, it may so use the resistance of that moving air against its outspread wings, placed at a certain angle, as to overcome the attraction of earth, and yet to remain still. It is a most delicate and scientific operation, and many birds are incapable of attempting it. 
the kestrel as well as the seagull is an adept at such soaring and so also is the mighty albatross those who have seen the albatross writes the duke of argyle footnote from the reign of law and footnote have described themselves as never tired of watching its glorious and triumphant motion tranquil its spirit seemed and floated slow even in its very motion there was rest rest where there is nothing else at rest in the tremendous turmoil of its own stormy seas sometimes for a whole hour together the splendid bird will sail or wheel round the ship in every possible variety of direction without requiring to give a single stroke to its pinions those long slender wings some fifteen feet across from one extreme tip to the other such wings are peculiarly adapted for flying long and far for floating at ease and for overcoming the force of ocean gales short-winged birds may advance fast but they cannot keep it up long and floating on the air at ease is out of their power when one thinks of bird life in general with all its infinite shades of variety the difficulty is to know what to select for a few paragraphs on the subject bird kinds count by thousands and tens of thousands bird ways are as varied as human ways not to say more so taking britain alone birds pass downward in gradual progression from the great eagle to the little wren numberless multitudes lying between taking the world generally the list already so long is tremendously extended for then the range extends from the huge ungainly ostrich to the tiny brilliant hummingbird where the more temperate climates of earth are found each season brings its own peculiar phase of bird life this is markedly the case in england winter means commonly for birds an uncertain wandering existence they have to be very much on the tramp in search of food except where they find attainable stores or better still kind human friends to scatter crumbs day by day a long and hard frost tells severely upon the birds of the air heavy snowstorms break through all their usual habits slaying large numbers driving oceanic birds inland making shy ones tame and wild ones almost domestic seagulls have been seen as high up the thames as westminster bridge and even the distant dignity of the eagle is not always proof against intense cold some years ago when i was with friends in scotland we came across a worthy highland cottager living in a lonely spot not far from the dee she described a long and bitter winter in terse terms and told how the very eagles had come down from the mountain retreats to have around her cottage looking out for scraps of food river hunting birds whose food lies under water are among the worst off at such times a sheet of ice means starvation to many a lovely blue and green kingfisher sitting forlornly among the ice-closed bushes vainly watching the hard surface which his beak cannot penetrate coming spring works a wonderful change in the world of bird life spring is the time for all their pretty love-making and mating for any amount of singing and quarrelling for diligent nest-building and egg-laying the rooks are hard at work 
and the sound of the cuckoo is heard while the woods and meadows ring with the wild sweet voices of thrush and blackbird linnet and robin for of course the robin sings still as he has bravely done all through the winter cold only he is now part of a general chorus not one among a very few solos then too the winter absentees begin to return the tiny willow wren steals silently back from his winter retreat in africa and the swallows and martins troop homeward by no means silently some repair their old nests and some build new ones the nests are various in kind as the builders delicately finished constructions here rough piles of sticks and moss there summer comes next a time of calm happiness to birds only broken in upon by the inevitable trials of domestic life by strong weather and by the attacks of the strong upon the weak in certain other lands little birds have been almost exterminated but in england they still spend in the main joyous summer days and insects have not yet a chance of overwhelming the farmers for lack of birds to feed on them birds voices wane as summer goes by and little families are launched in life and arrangements for autumn gradually begin to take shape the migratory birds draw more together as if disposed to talk over their plans autumn is the time for change except with those little constant birds who cling faithfully to home through all taking their chance of ice and snow and bitter blast both late summer and early autumn are a quiet not to say a depressed time in the bird world for moulting takes place and singing voices have vanished and bird powers generally are at a somewhat low ebb when moulting is over the robin gets back his voice and also do the wren the skylark and a few others but the autumn singing however sweet never approaches the outburst of sound which belongs to spring even homestaying birds are very busy seeking winter retreats and those who have a long aerial voyage ahead are in all the flurry of a speedy departure many people can never travel without a certain amount of preliminary fuss and birds seem to follow the same rule after all no wonder a perilous route lies before them migration of birds is beset with many dangers and difficulties birds often lose their way a contrary wind or a spell of dark cloudy weather appears to disorganize their movements and like mariners without a compass they are at a loss which direction to take footnote from c dixon End of footnote. the wonder seems to be not that they often lose their way through the trackless depths of the air ocean but that they ever find it how far they journey by instinct and how far the younger birds are guided by the knowledge of older ones who have travelled the same route before who shall declare with certainty strange sights are sometimes witnessed in an autumn evening by the men of a lighthouse generally the migratory companies of birds alight to roost and sleep as night approaches but sometimes a dark cloud shutting off the daylight with suddenness takes them by surprise and the gleams of the lighthouse lamp draw them out of their paths causing further confusion at such a time myriads of birds may be seen to pass ducks and swallows geese and wrens finches and herons swans and larks these and others intermingled with birds of prey 
forgetting to pray, while their usual victims forget to flee from them. All alike are bewildered, frightened, hurrying to and fro, wandering hither and thither, not knowing whither to turn. Too many dash out their brains against the strong glass of the lighthouse, and so never even make a fair start for the southern land, whither they are bound. Yet out of all the perils which they meet, great numbers do arrive safely, and great numbers do come back again to us next spring, for fresh singing, mating, nest-building, and family-rearing. It has been lately asserted that no less than ninety varieties of birds may be seen in London alone, not counting escaped foreigners from cages. Rookeries still exist there, and even owls are to be found within metropolitan limits. Jackdaws are tolerably common. The blackbird and the thrush are not absolute strangers. Swallows fly to and throw, though they will not build in the great city. And while the red-breast eschews London streets, it still clings to the outskirts. The London birds par excellence are sparrows and pigeons. Before the days of electric telegraphs, the pigeon was the usual news carrier. One well-trained will fly at the rate of a mile a minute, keeping up the speed persistently for one hundred miles. Marvelous as it sounds, it is exceeded by other birds. A rook, going at full speed, beats the fastest express train ever made by man, or he can hasten through the ocean of air at the rate of one hundred miles an hour. The length of time that some birds can fly, without needing to alight, is extraordinary. Seagulls have been known to accompany steamers all across the Atlantic Ocean, careless of the roughest headwinds, floating about with most absolute ease and apparent absence of exertion, scarcely seeming ever to rest. They are said to sleep upon the wing, tucking away their heads like a canary on its perch, rocked on the bosom of the wild winds, flying in sleep, as we all breathe in sleep, unconsciously and mechanically. From the wide world of bird life we might pass onward still, through multitudes of small and great beasts, till another wide gap is reached, that which divides brute life from human life, that which separates the most highly developed intelligence of lower animals from the wonderful brain and spirit powers of man. Even man, however, had as he is of the animal kingdom, unutterably superior to the noblest of his subjects in possibilities, if not always in action, even he, in this life, can but creep about, on or near the bottom of the aerial ocean, even he can but watch from thence, with curious eyes, the wonders of that ocean, searching into its make, its movements, its governing laws, its conflicting forces, its countless forms of life. End of chapter 36 End of The Ocean of Air, Meteorology for Beginners by Agnes Giburn